Hello, I wanted to let you know that this Flirtations Life to Tape podcast recording of The Girl Aviator's visual audiobook is funded by viewer support. If you would like to help out as well, you can visit flirtationsdonations.com where there are many ways you can help support Flirtations and the Flirtations Live to Tape and our sister sites. There you can find ways you can donate through PayPal, you can set up reoccurring subscriptions on PayPal or also on Patreon. There are many levels on Patreon on which you can support. And there is also an Amazon wish list that will help us with equipment uh, donations. And we also accept cryptocurrencies as well. If you're old school and you like to send uh, checks, we have our P.O. Box information also on that page at flotationsdonations.com. I want to thank everyone who has helped support this series so far, and I hope you help too. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Flotations Live to Tape podcast. We are recording The Girl Aviators and the Motor Butterfly. We are continuing from where we last let off on Chapter 10, Peggy's Intuition. The moment of the invaders of the stable which now housed the winged steeds of the young aviators were mysterious in the extreme. The Norwegian carried a tin can containing some sort of liquid which he was ordered to pour about the floor in the neighborhood of the two airplanes. This done, Dan Castle collected several scraps of litter and made quite a pile of it. All ready now, I guess, he said, with what was meant as an attempt at a grin, but his lips were pale and his forced jolly was a dismal failure. As for his father, he made no attempt to conceal his agitation. Dan, they may be burned alive, he faltered. Better call it off. Not when we're gone as far as this with it, was the rejoinder. Give me a match. Dan, it's all right, Dad. They'll wake in time. But if not, then they'll have to take their medicine. With the fingers that trembled as if their owner was paralyzed, Jim Castle handed his son some matches, then later took one, bent low over the pile he had collected, and struck the looser. A yellow sputtered of flame followed, and the next instant he was holding it to the pile of litter that had been previously soaked by the contents of the Norwegian's can. But before he could accomplish his purpose and set fire to the pile of odds and ends saturated to double inflammatory by kerosene the Norwegian had carried, then came a startling interruption. There was a knock at the door, and a girl's voice cried, Roy, Roy, let me in. Furries, exclaimed Dan Castle under his breath. It's one of those girls. Come on, let's get away quick, exclaimed his father, trembling from nervous agitation. Not before I get a match to this, exclaimed Dan Castle vicariously. He touched the match to the pile, and the flames leapt up. Now for a getaway, he cried, and the three firebugs ran from the window by which they had made their entrance. In the meantime, a perfect full side of blows had been been showered on the door outside. Jimsy awoke just as the last of the three midnight intruders vanished through the window. His first instinct was a hot flush of shame over the feeling that he had betrayed his trust. Then to his ears came the voice that had alarmed Castle and their tool. Roy, Jimsy, are you there? It's Peggy, grasped Jimsy, and Jess, and he added the next instant, and simultaneously there came a pounding of a stick on the door. This is an officer of the law. Open up at once. 
Chimsy, dazed by his sleep, had not till then noticed the blazing pile of litter. Now he did so with a very quick cry of horror. The stuff was blazing up fiercely. Already there was an acrid reek in the air. The place was on fire, he shouted. The next moment there came a violent assault on the door, and the crazed lock parted from its rotten fastening as a man a man attired in a police officer's uniform burst into place. Behind him came two wide-eyed, frightened girls. The leaping flames lit up their faces vividly. The fire, sure enough, cried the police officer. Great Scott, what's happening? It was Roy who shouted the question. He was peering down from the loft where he had been sleeping. The uproar had awakened him, and in a jiffy he was among them. Quick, the fire extinguisher, he cried, and Jimsy, reading, un readily understanding, secured the flame-killing apparatus from the biplane and from the red dragon. He and Roy, aided by the officer, fought the flames vigorously, and luckily were able to subdue them, though it had not been for the, the as-yet unexplained arrival of Peggy and Jess, it doubtful if they would have coped with the blaze. When it was all out, Peggy rushed into explanation. Something warned me that you were in danger, she exclaimed, and I woke up Jess and we found this officer and came down here. What gift of second sight you have, demanded Roy, gazing at the smoking blackened pile that had threatened the destruction of the inflammable premises. I don't know, womanly intuition, perhaps. Oh, Roy. The girl burst into a half-hysterical sob and threw her arms about her brother's neck. You arrived in the nick of time, sis, he said, gently disengaging himself from her clasp. A little more, and... He did not finish the sentence. There was no need for him to. By gory, the old place, you've been a pile of cinders in an hour's time, declared the, police, the policeman. It was just his turn to give the hysterical little sob. Roy turned to Jimsy. Did you see anything? The place is reeking with kerosene. It was a good plot to destroy the airplanes, and perhaps ourselves. I, I, Jimsy standard, stammered. The words seemed to choke up in his throat. How was he to confess that he had failed in his trust, had slept while danger threatened? Well, Roy waited, plainly surprised. It was not like Jimsy to hesitate and stammer in this way. At last it came out with a rush. I... Well, you'll never forgive me, any of you. I was asleep. Asleep, oh, Jimsy. There was a word of reproach in Jessie's voice, but Peggy interrupted. How was it, Jimsy? She asked softly. I don't know. I gave you my word. I don't know. Jimsy's voice held a word of self-reproach. I was reading, he went on, hurrying over the words, as if anxious to get his confession over with, that book on Gold's on monoplane's navigation. I felt sleepy, and the next thing I knew, I woke up, to hear you pounding on the door and shouting. A good thing the young ladies found me, put in the policeman. Sure if I was sure I was after laughing at them at first, but then by gory I decided to come along with them, and I'm glad I, that I did. What can who can have done this? asked Roy, who had not a word of reproach to his chum, although Jimsy had failed dismally in his position of trust. By gory, they might have burnt you alive, cried the policeman indignantly. No question about that, rejoined Roy. It was a diabolical plot. Who who could have attempted such a thing? Wait till I call up and have the detectives sent down here, said Officer McCarthy. I'm after thinking this is too deep for us to solve. 
Nevertheless, each of that little group with the policeman had his or her idea on the matter. Chapter 11. A Mean Revenge The result of the telephone call was a request to call the police headquarters of the little town and give a detailed account of the affair. Gracious, I should think that the only way to get a clue would be to send a detective down here, exclaimed Peggy on receipt from the information. We have our own ways of doing them things, miss, rejoined the policeman with dignity. Then there had been nothing for it but to obey the instructions of the authorities. They all set out for the police station. They were halfway there when Jimsy recollected that they had left the airplanes unguarded. So it'll make no difference to at all, at all, declared the policeman. Sure, it's too late for anyone to be about. It wasn't too late for them to set fire, though, rejoined Roy in a low voice. At the policeman's headquarters, they were received by two sleepy-looking officials who questioned them at length and said they would be stationed in the morning to hunt for clues. Why not go after them now while the trail is hot, inquired Jimsy. We have our own ways of doing things, the young man, was the reply delivered with pomperous dignity. Well, we might as well go to bed and get a few hours sleep anyhow, suggested Roy. I can hardly keep my eyes open. How about you? Jimsy, I've had some sleep already, you know, regretted Jimsy reddening. Throughout that thoroughly tired, out of their long day and excitement, the party slept till late the next day. The first thing after breakfast, plans for the continuance of the trip were discussed, and the day's program mapped out. This done, the girls and boys set out for the stable to look over the machines. They found a pompous-looking policeman on guard in front of the place, ostentationally pacing up and down. On identifying themselves, they were at once admitted. However, the man explained that he had only been on guard for an hour or two, and that during that time nothing worthy of mention had occurred. While Jimsy was talking to him, Roy and the others entered the stable. An instant later, Roy, too excited to talk, came rushing out of the came rushing out of the disused livery barn. What's up now, Roy? demanded Jimsy, gazing at his chum, who had who for his part appeared to be too excited to get out words. There's only three, gasped Roy. Three what? cried Jimsy. Three airplanes, returned Roy. Rubbish, you haven't got your eyes open yet. I'm right, I tell you. Come in and count them yourself. Don't believe me? Roy is right, cried Peggy, running up the group. The golden butterfly has been stolen. Stolen, interjected Jimsy. That's right, cried Jess. Those stupid policemen left the barn unguarded. Whoever tried to set it on fire must have returned and stolen the butterfly. They regarded, regarded each other blankly. Was this sky cruise that they had looked forward to with such eager anticipation to be nothing but a series of mishaps? It's awful, gasped Peggy. Nothing but trouble since we started out. Do you think it was stolen? asked the policeman with startling intelligence. Well, it didn't fly of its own accord, was Peggy's rejoined, delivered with blighting sarcasm. The patrolman subsided. Maybe we can find it yet, suggested Jess. I'd like to know how, put in Jimsy, discouragedly. Perhaps we can just trace it. It must have been wheeled away. Ginger, that's so, said Roy, snapping his fingers. It would leave an odd track, too, wouldn't it? Well, there's no harm in trying to trace it, admitted Jimsy, who appeared rather skeptical. Come on, then, get busy, urged Roy eagerly. 
The next instant there came a cry from Peggy. I've struck the trail, she cried. Where? The words came in chorus. Here, look, you know the butterfly had peculiar kind of tires. See, it was wheeled up in the streets in that direction. She pointed to where the village main thoroughfare ended in the country road. I'm not after taking much stock in that, remarked the policeman. We won't bother you, rejoined Roy rather heartedly. I guess we won't wait till your local Sherlock Holmes gets on the trail. We'll follow it ourselves. But who will go? The question came from Jimsy. We can't all go, that's certain, exclaimed Bess. Tell you what we'll do. We'll count out, declared Jess, her eyes dancing. A good idea, hailed the others. Roy, you start it. But remember, not more than three can go. Why? inquired Peggy, point blank. Because we'll have to take the car, and someone must be left to look after Aunt Sally and the aeroplane, spoke Roy, failing in, falling in with Chimsey's plan. Well, come on and count out, urged Jess. Yes, that's it. Let's see who it will be, cried the others. Very well. If I can remember the rhyme, responded Roy. How does it go anyway? Ain't meat, suggested Chimsey. Oh, yes, that's it, responded Roy. I've got it now. Ain't meat, coot, corn, apple seed, and briar thorn, briar thorn, and limber jack, these geese in our flock, one flew cast, one flew west, one flew into a cuckoo's nest, out with the ragged dish clout out, ending with Bess. Sorry for you, Bess, cried the lad, but you're the first victim to be offered up. Oh, well, it's too hot to be chasing all over, dusty country roads declared Bess bravely although she would dearly have loved to go on the adventurous search for the missing aeroplane one after another they were counted out till only Roy and Peggy and Chimsey remained hurry up and let's get off urged Chimsey as the elimination trials as they might be termed were concluded very well we'll get in the car it's in, in the garage at the hotel and incidentally we might get a lunch put up also it may be a long chase the officers regarded them with frank amazement my but you city folks rushed things he exclaimed i suppose they'll get busy on the case day after tomorrow exclaimed roy disgustedly as they hastened away it was half an hour later that the big touring car with roy at the wheels rolled out of the hotel yard jake had been told off to guard the livery stables and the airplanes while the rest remained with miss prescott who was seriously agitated at the accumulation of her of troubles her parties had met since setting out i declare she said i wish i was back home where i could get a decent cup of tea and be free of worries the trail of aeroplanes was not difficult to follow it led down the village street and thence along the country road until it came to a short of crossroads here it branched off and followed a by-road for a mile or so at a gate in a hedge all signs failed however although it was plain that the machine had been wheeled through the gap and taken across the field beyond this field lay what appeared to be a wilderness of woods and bushes stumped exclaimed roy as he brought the auto to a stop chapter twelve the finding of the butterfly well what's next asked Chimsey. make a search of those woods i suppose replied roy there's nothing else to do no the trail has brought us here replied peggy energetically we must make a determined effort to find the butterfly maybe they damaged it so that we won't be able to do anything with it when we do get it spoke Chimsey presently 
Whom do you mean by they? asked Roy. As if you didn't know. Is there any doubt in your mind that this fellow castle is the at the bottom of this? Not very much, I'll admit, replied Roy. I wonder if that accounts for the inactivity of the police. In just that way. In just what way? Well, the fellow's a local politician and has a lot of pull. He must have to get away with anything like this, was Jimsy's indignant outburst. Well, don't let us waste time speculating, put in Peggy in her brisk manner. The thing to do now is to get back the golden butterfly. You're right, Peg, came from the both boys. But this time they were out of the car, which they left standing at this roadside while they examined the vicinity for tracks. But the grass in the field was fairly long, and no traces remained. Yet as much as the tracks of the butterfly ended at the gap in the hedge, it managed it was manifest that was the point at which it had been wheeled off the road. What next? asked Jimsy, as it became certain that there was little use in searching for a trail in the meadow. It's like looking for a needle in the proverbial haystack struck in Peggy. In my opinion, we need the patience of Job and years of old Meth Methula, opined Jimsy. Roy alone was not discouraged. It can't be very, so very far off, he urged. It stands to reason that they can't have come much further than this since midnight, supposing the machine to have been stolen about that hour. The others agreed with him. We'll search around here, including those woods, declared Peggy. Well, they can't have taken it very far off into the woods, declared Jimsy. The spread of its wings could prevent that. So, that's so, agreed Roy. I think we're getting pretty warm right now. And I'm afraid of that, that they may have damaged it, breathed Peggy anxiously. It would be in line with their other tactics, agreed Roy. Men who would try to burn down a stable with two boys in it, just to obtain revenge for a fancy insult or injury, are capable of anything. Without further waste of time, they crossed the meadow and came to the edge of the wood. At the outskirts of the wood, the trees grew thinly, and it was plain that it would have been possible to wheel an airplane into their shadow, despite the breadth of the wingspan. They passed under the outlying trees and, and pressed, emerged into a small open space, just in the midst of which was a hut. Just beyond this hut was the sight that caused them to shout aloud with joy. There, apparently unharmed, stood the missing airplane. Hurrah! shouted Roy dashing forward. The others were close on his heels. In their excitement, they paid little or no attention to the surroundings. It might have been better for them had they done so, and as they dashed across the clearing, two male figures slipped off among the thick trees that lay beyond the open space of the hut and the hut. A brief examination showed them that the airplane was undamaged. There were a few scratches on it, but beyond that, it appeared in perfect condition. We'll fly back, declared Jimsy to Peggy. Roy can run the auto home. That's agreeable to me, responded Roy. But suppose we examine the vicinity first. We might get a clue as to the rascals who are responsible for this. That is true, agreed Jimsy. Then suppose we start with the hut first. They accepted this p proposition eagerly. The hut was substantially looking building with a padlock on the door. But the portal stood wide open, the padlock hanging in a hasp. What if, what if anyone pounces on us? asked Peggy in a rather scared tone. No fear of that, replied Roy. 
The place is painfully unoccupied. They entered the hut and found it to be as primitive inside inside as its exterior would indicate. A table and two rude chairs stood within. These were the exception to a rusty cook stove in one corner, formed the sole furnishings. There was not even a window in the place. Nothing much to be found here, declared Roy, after a cursory examination. I guess this shack was put up by a lumberman or hunters. It doesn't seem to have been occupied for very a very long time. I guess the men who took the aeroplane must have been pretty familiar with the place, though, opined Jimmy. No doubt of that, replied Roy, but that doesn't give way, give any clue to their identity beyond bare suspicions. Yes, and suspicions weren't good in law, chimed in Peggy. They, they good gracious. The door closed suddenly with a bang. Before Jimsy could spring across the room to open it, there came a sharp click. Somebody padlocked it on the outside, he cried. And we're prisoners, gasped Peggy. Yes, and without any chance of getting out either, declared Jimsy. There's not even a window in this place. Well, this is worse and more of it, cried Roy. Who could have done that? The same people that stole the golden butterfly, declared Peggy. Hark. Outside they heard rapidly retreating footsteps followed by a harsh laugh. Let's, let us out, shouted Roy. You can stay there till judgment day for all I care, came back a hoarse rasping voice. You kids were too fresh, and now you're getting what's coming to you. Chapter 13 Prisoners in the Hut It was almost pitch dark within the hut. Only from the crack under the door could any light enter. For an instant after the taunting of the voices of the men who locked them in reached their ears, the trio of youthful prisoners remained silent. Peggy, it was, it was, it was Peggy who spoke first. Well, what's to be done now? She demanded. We've got to get out of here, responded Jimsy, with embarrassing candor. That's plain enough, struck in Roy. But how do you propose to do it? I don't know. Let's look about. Maybe there's a chimney or something. There's no opening larger than the one where the stovepipe goes to. I've noticed that already, responded Roy. Phew, this is a fix for fair. I shouldn't say so, but kicking about it won't help us at all. Let's make a thorough investigation. In the darkness they groped about, but could discover nothing that appeared to hold out a promise of escape. The two boys shook the door violently, but it was firm on its hinges. Next, Roy proposed to cut away through it with his pocket knife. We'll be starved to death by the time you cut through that stuff, declared Jimsy. In proof of this, he kicked the door, and the resulting sound showed that it was built of solid wood without any thin panels which might be cut through. What's next? Peggy asked the question as the two perspiring lads stood perplexed without speaking or moving. Jiggered if I know, spoke Jimsy. Can't you or Roy think of something? We might try to batter the door down with that table, suggested Roy. It's worth trying. We've got to get out of here somehow. The two boys picked up the heavy, roughly made table and commenced a violent assault on the door. But although they dented it heavily and sent some splinters flying, the portal held its own. At length, they de they deceased with pure weariness. The situation looked hopeless. It looks pretty bad, spoke Jimsy. It does indeed, agreed Roy. Peggy, I wish we had brought, hadn't brought you along. And why, pray, Roy Prescott? 
Oh, because, well, this isn't the sort of thing for a girl. Well, I guess if my brother can stand it, rejoined the girl pluckily and in a firm voice, well, there's no use in mincing, minimizing the fix we're in, declared Roy. This is a lonesome bit of country. It may be a week before anyone will come around. We've just got to get out, and that's there all there is to it. I wish you solved the problem then, sighed Jimsy. It's too much for me. I'll make another search of the premises. Maybe we can stumble across something that may aid us. At any rate, it will give us something to do and keep our minds off the predicament we are in. Roy stuck out a match, which he held plentiful supply in his pocket. As the yellow flames sputtered up in the semi-gloom, it showed every corner of the small hut, but it did not reveal anything that promised a change to gain their liberty. At once, just on the light was sputtering out, Peggy gave a cry. Her eye had been caught by a glistening metal object in one corner of the hut. What is it? asked Roy. A gun. A shotgun standing in that corner over there. Huh? huffed Jimsy. A lot of good that does us. On the contrary, declared Peggy stoutly. If it's loaded, it may serve to get us free. I'm from Missouri, declared Jimsy enigmatically. What's your idea, sis? asked Roy, who knew that Peggy's idea were usually worth following up. I remember reading only a short time ago of a man trapped as we are who escaped by blowing off the lock of his prison with the gun he carries, replied Peggy. Maybe it will work in our case. Maybe it would, rejoined Roy. What if? If the gun was loaded, which it most li- which is most unlikely, we'll try it and see, urged Peggy. Yes, do, echoed Jimsy. Peggy's plan sounded like a good idea. Maybe some hunter left it here, and the shells are still in it. No harm in finding out anyway, declared Roy. He struck another match and picked up the gun. It was an antique-looking weapon, badly rusted, but on opening the breach, he uttered a cry of joy. Good luck, exclaimed. Two shells, one in each barrel. Well, put it to the test, urged Jimsy. All right, and if this fails, though, I don't know what we'll do. Don't worry about that now. Try it. I'm going to. Don't get peevish. Roy crossed the room to the door, raising the gun to his shoulder. He placed the muzzle about opposite to where he thought the padlock must be located. Look out for the big, for a big noise, sis, he warned. Peggy gave a little scream and raised her hands to her ears. She disliked firearms. Ready, sang out Jimsy. Already came the reply. Then fire. Simultaneously with Jimsy's order came a deafening report. In a, convert, in a confined space, it sounded as if a huge cannon had been fired. Roy staggered back until the kick of the heavy charge. One more, he announced. Again, a sonorous report sounded, but this time a selection of door was blown right out of the framework. The daylight streamed in through it. Now then, for the test, cried Roy. Come on, Jimsy. The two boys placed their shoulders to the door, and with a suddenness that was startling, it burst open, and they faced freedom. The lock had been fairly driven from its hold, and by the twice-repeating charge of the shot. The young aviators were free once more, but it remained to be seen the men who had wished them harm had wrought their vengeance on the golden butterfly. Chapter 14 What's to be done about the wren? The golden butterfly 
as an examination proved, had not been damaged during their imprisonment in the hut. Evidently, the men who had slammed the door and padlocked it made off at top speed as soon as they had completed what they hoped would be the source of sore trouble to the young aviators. And now we'll fly back as agreed, declared Peggy merrily. Her spirits almost down to zero in the hut had recovered themselves marvelously in the fresh open air. She was radiant. I declare that the stay in the hut has done you good, declared Jimsy, looking at her admirably. Maybe it has by contrast, returned Peggy, like a sea trip, put in Roy. I've learned that people who suffer from seasickness are so much relieved when they get ashore that they imagine their good spirits are due to the change in the air condition. Well, that applies to me, returned Peggy. I didn't think we'd get out of that hut so easily. How do you suppose that gun came to be there? The hunters who used the hut must have left it there, rejoined Roy. I wonder if they'll ever know how useful it was to us. More likely they'll be mad when they find the lock is blown off the door, laughed Jimsy. Well, so long, folks. I'm going to start back in the auto, declared Roy. We'll beat you into town, challenged Jimsy. More than likely, if the golden butterfly is doing her best, was the rejoinder. Ten minutes later, the two machines were racing back to Meadville at almost top speed, of course. The speedy golden butterfly won, but then the vehicle of the air does not have to contend with the obstacles that a land conveyance does. They found Miss Prescott among the verge of hysterics, a gobbled version of events the night had been brought to her, and this, com coupled with the long absence of the three young folks, had made her extremely nervous. I declare it seems as if you can't keep out of trouble, she said. Well, it certainly does seem so, I admit, confessed Peggy, but we promise to be very good for the rest of the trip. It never troubles troubles till troubles trouble us, chanted Jimsy airily. That's all very well, but you keep me continually in suspense, and as to what you'll do next, almost wailed Prescott, we set out for a quiet trip and encountered nothing but troubles. Adventures, Aunt Sally, laughingly corrected Roy. What is life without adventures? Well, I'm sure. I don't know what young people are coming to, sighed Miss Prescott with resignation. There's another thing. What are we to do with this little wren? We can't leave her here. That's for certain, declared Peggy with vehemence. No, indeed, echoed Jess and Bess, who were of the council. Then what do we do with her? Just tote her along, I suppose, rejoined Peggy. Poor little thing, she doesn't take up much room. Besides, just thinks she's an heiress. They all laughed. You must have had an overdose of Laura Jean Libby, declared Roy. Roy Prescott, you behave yourself, cried Jess, flushing up. Besides, she has a strawberry mark on her left arm. My gracious, then she surely is a missing heiress, exclaimed Jimsy teasingly. All well regulated missing heiresses have strawberry marks and almost always on their left arm. It was at this juncture that the knock came to the door and a bellboy stood outside. A gentleman to see you, sir, he said, handing Roy a card. It, on it was printed, Mr. James Kennedy, Detective, Meadville Police Station. Goodness, a real detection, a detective, exclaimed Jess excitedly. Let's see him. You won't be much impressed, I'm afraid, rejoined Roy, with a smile at his recollection of the Meadville sleuths. Why doesn't he wear glasses and have a hawk 
like nose and a smoke pipe, inquired Bess, and hunt up missing Harris's teasingly struck and Jimsy. No, he's a very different sort of person. But hush, he's coming now. A heavy tread sounded in the hall, and Mr. James Kennedy, detective of the Meadville Police Force, stood before them. As Jimsy had said, he was not impressive as to outward appearance, although his fat, heavy face and rather vacant eyes might have concealed a giant intellect. I have investigated the case of the attempted burning of the stable last night, he began. Yes, exclaimed Roy eagerly. Have you suspicions of who did it? The man shook his head. As yet we have no clues, he declared, and I don't think we'll get any. That's too bad, replied Roy, but let me tell you something that may help you. The lad launched into the description of their adventures of the morning. That hut belongs to Luke Higgins, a respectable man who is out west at present, said the detective when Roy had finished. He uses it for all sort of hunting box in the rabbit shooting season. He couldn't have had anything to do with it. I'd like to know his address so I could write him a thank you for leaving that gun there, declared Peggy warmly. The detective shook his head solemnly. I reckon you young folks had better stop ski-daddling around this country this way, he said with heavy conviction. You only get into more trouble. Flying ain't natural, no more than cowing hens is. With this, he picked up his hat, and after assuring them that he would find a clue within a short time, he departed, leaving behind him a, in company, which amusement mingled with indignation. In fact, so angry was Roy over the stupidity or ignorance of the Meadville police that he himself set out on a hunt to detect the authors of the outrage upon the young aviators. The sole result of his inquiry, however, was to establish the fact that both Cassells had left town closing their houses and announcing that they would be gone for some time. As there was nothing further to be gained by remaining in Meadville, the entire party after lunch set out once more, a big crowd witnessing the departure of the aerial tourists. They flew fast, and as the roads were excellent, the autos had no difficulty in keeping up with them on the on through the afternoon they soared along sometimes swooping low above the alluring bit of scenery and again heading their machines skyward in pure exuberance of spirit their troubles at meadville forgotten they flew their machines like sportive birds never had any of them experienced more fully the joy of flight the sense of freedom that comes with traveling untamored into the ether they passed they had passed above a small village and were flying low, those in the auto waving to them, when Peggy and the golden butterfly gave a sudden exclamation. Oh, look, she shouted, a flock of sheep, and right in the path of the auto. At that moment, all of them saw the sheep, a large flock heading by a belligerent-looking ram with immense horns. Jake, who was driving the car, slowed up as he approached the flock. The woolly herd, huddled together helplessly, made no effort to get out of the road. Behind them, a man and a boy shouted and yelled vigorously. But with no more effect to the bunch of animals, more squarely in the path of the advancing car. All at once, just as the car was slowing down to an almost walking pace, a big ram separated himself from the flock and actually rushed for the seat of the car. Jake uttered a yell as the woolly creature gave him a hard butt, knocking him out of his seat. But this wasn't all. By some freak, 
strange freak, the animal had landed in the car in the sitting posture. Now the young aviator roared with laughter to behold the creature seated in Jake's forcibly vacant seat. Its hoofs rested on the driving wheel. Forward plunged the car, its queer driver, with his feet wedged in the spokes of the steering wheel. Aloft the flock, aloft the flock of young aviators roared with laughter at the sight. It was the oddest experience they had had yet the spectacle of a grave-looking long-horned ram driving an auto. Now Jake prudently kept out of reach of those horns. As for Miss Prescott and the wren, they cowered in the back of the tanu in keen alarm. Oh, cried Peggy suddenly, there comes a runabout. That ram will surely collide with it. A runabout coming in the opposite direction dashed around the corner of the country road at this juncture. The driver was a young girl, but she was veiled, and her features could not be seen under the thick face covering. Apparently, the rams saw the other car coming, for the animal actually appeared to make halfway intelligent effort to steal the car, steer the car out of the way. For her part, the girl in the runabout swerved her car from side to side in a struggle to avoid collision, which appeared inevitable. Stop it, shrieked Bess. She'll be killed. Chapter 15 A Rambunctious Ram The ram inevitably saw the other car company. It tried to leap out, but its hoofs were jammed in the spokes of the steering wheel. Before Jake could pick himself up from the floor or the front part of the car, there came a loud shriek from the runabout. It was echoed by Miss Prescott and the wren. Crash! The two cars came together with a fearful jolt. The eyes of the young aviators aloft were fixed on the scene, they saw a large car strike the runabout and crumble its engine hood. Peggy gave the scream. The ram, jolted out of its seat by the force of the collision, fell out to one side, allowing Jake to resume control of the wheel. But the runabout—it was ditched, and an unfortunate—and its unfortunate occupant being pitched headlong into the ditch at the side of the road. Down swept the airplanes, and there was a wild rush to the rescue. Peggy, Jess, and Bess ran to the side of the injured occupant of the strange runabout. The boys divided themselves, attending to everything. Roy, Roy, hurry, she's unconscious. The cry came from Peggy as she rushed to the side of the young motorist. Roy was not far off, and at his sister's cry, he hastened to her side. Peggy had the girl's head in her lap. Get water, she cried, but Jimsy was already on hand with a collapsed aluminum aluminum cup filled with water from the nearby spring of the poor dear sighed peggy to think that our fun should have the strange girl opened her eyes who are you she examined where is my machine never mind for a minute spoke peggy seeing that jimsy and jake were trying to drag the machine out of the ditch we'll fix it never fear oh my head groaned the girl that pesky ram exploited roy angrily let me help you into the road you'll be more comfortable Oh, thank you. I can stand, came faintly from the injured girl. I'm much better now. What happened? Why, a sort of volunteer driver was experimenting with our car, and I guess he made a mistake in driving, smiling, ro smilingly explained Roy. Oh, that ram, cried the girl, half hysterically. I thought I had a nightmare at first. I don't blame you, smiled Peggy, seeing a ram driving a motor car is apt to give anyone such ideas. Are you really better? asked Jess sympathetically as she came up. 
Peggy, get my smiling salts out of the travel bag, cried Miss Prescott anxiously. The accident had disturbed her sadly. The only unperturbed one in the party was Jake. He took things with a philosophical calm. Knew more troubles was coming, said he, and contented himself by dismissing the situation with that. I've got good news for you, said Jimsy, coming up. Your car isn't hurt a bit. Oh, good, cried the girl, clasping her hands and flushing. Her veil was raised now, and they saw that she was very blonde and very pretty and just now very pale. What's my rambunctious ram, pruned Roy? Her ramified all over, didn't she? Gracious, for a time I thought I was seeing things, gasped the girl, who was seated on a truffed hammock of grass at the side of the road. And then you felt them, laughed Jimsy, and that was, and that's the way such things run. They all laughed. Soon after, Roy, Jimsy, and Jake dragged the small runabout out of the ditch. In the meantime, Peggy had introduced herself in jest to the young girl. The latter's name was Levita Nidsbeth. She lived not far from the scene of the accident and had been taking a jaunt in her machine. The runabout had been rescued and the whole party introduced and talking merrily when Jess set up a cry. Goodness, here comes that ram again. Down the road with two sheep drivers at its heels, the beast was indeed coming. It advanced at a hard gallop with its head lowered and formidable horns ready for a charge into the midst of the group. Look out for him, yelled the sheep herders. They needed no second injunction. All skipped adderly out of the path of the oncoming beast, which was rushed, rushing on like a whirlwind. Jimsy proved equal to the emergency. For his airplane, he took the rope, which had already done good service in rescuing the golden butterfly from the pond. He formed it into a loop and lurried of western plains. Now we've got him, exclaimed, he exclaimed. That is, if we are careful, but watch out. No danger of that, responded Peggy, from the vantage of the tenue of the car. But how are we going to rope him? Watch. Jimsy began swinging his loop in even wider circles, and the ram now within a few feet of him. Oh, the dart, shrieked Bess. He'll go right through it. Indeed, it did appear as if the maddened animal would, but just as there are many slips between cup and lip, so are there many slips between the ram and the airplane. Just as it appeared that he would plow his way right through the delicate fabric, Jimsy hurled his loop and settled it around the animal's horn. Planting his heels in the ground, Jimsy held tight to the rope. The next minute, he snubbed it tight, and the ram lost its feet and rolled over and over in the dust. Jake and Roy rushed and completed the job of tying the creature. Goodness, Jimsy, you're a regular bronco buster, cried Peggy admirably. Oh, I learned to do some tricks with a rope when with the horse hunters out in Nevada, was their response. But careless as his manner was, Jimsy's eyes glowed with triumph. It was plainly to be seen that he was delighted with his success. Just then the two sheep drivers came running up. The girls looked rather alarmed. Suppose they should blame them for trying to kidnap the ram. I'll do the talking, declared Roy. If you said anything, Jimsy, there might be a row. All right, laughed Jimsy, regarding his roped and tied captive. I just suppose you're an expert on dealing with ram owners. Well, I'm on to their mental ramifications, laughed Roy. The sheep driver, an elderly man, accomplished 
by a youth came up to them now. He touched his hat civilly as he approached. Good afternoon. None, no one hurt, I hope, he said. The girls looked greatly relieved. After all, the man was not rude or angry as they had feared. No, no, thank you, cried Jess before Roy or Jimsy could open their mouths. I hope he isn't, though. Hurt, exclaimed the ram's owner. Why, you couldn't hurt him with a steam hammer. Why, days afore yesterday, the blam thing went over my wife. Hoofs and horn, yes, sir. Almost knocked her down, he did. I'll fix him. What's his name? asked Bess. Hannibal, said the man without a flicker of facial muscle. I should think Cannonball would be a better name for him, struck in Jimsy with that funny, serious face he always assumed when joshing. Yes, sir, I guess it would be more appropriate at that, assented the man. He looked at the disabled machine. Busted, he asked, in apparent concern. To some extent, rejoined Roy, only except for the engine hood being dented, there doesn't appear to be much the matter with it. Glad to pay if there be, said the sheep driver. I'm going to get rid of the pesky critter. He's cost me a lot in damaged suits already. Why don't you put him on the stage as a boxing ram or something like that, inquired Jimsy. Might be a good scheme, said the man, as if considering the proposal seriously. Mary had a little ram, laughed Jimsy, who was thereupon told not to be horrid. Why don't you box the nasty thing's ears for riding in our cars, asked Roy, Roy of Peggy. I'd like to do something with the saucy thing, declared Peggy with vehemence. Tell you what, let's buy him. The suggestion came to Jimsy. Yes, we'll have his skin made up into an auto's rope, suggested Roy. If you boys aren't ridiculous, cried Peggy. I want to forget the incident, and I'm so sure does Lavina, the name of the girl who had just been spilled out of her machine. You may be sure I do, she declared with emphasis. I was never so scared in my life. Want to buy him? asked the man, grasping at a chance of selling an animal that he had already placed him in some embarrassing positions. How much do you want? asked Roy, more as a joke than anything else. Three dollars, said the man. There you are, girls. Who will bid? Who will bid? This fine young ram is going at his sacrifice. Jimsy imitated an auctioneer, raising his voice to a sharp pitch. Well, I want to thank you for coming out to this episode of the Fortations Life to Tape podcast. We were reading the, June, the Girl Aviators and the Motor Butterfly. And next week, we will continue on with Chapter 16, an invitation to race. Hello, I wanted to let you know that this Flirtations Life to Tape podcast recording of the Girl Aviators visual audiobook is funded by viewer support. If you would like to help out as well, you can visit flirtationsdonations.com where there are many ways you can help support Flirtations and the Flirtations Live to Tape and our sister sites. There you can find ways you can donate through PayPal. You can set up reoccurring subscriptions on PayPal or also on Patreon. There are many levels on Patreon on which you can support. And there is also an Amazon wish list that will help us with equipment uh, donations. And we also accept cryptocurrencies as well. If you're old school and you like to send uh, checks, we have our P.O. Box information also on that page at flotationsdonations.com. I want to thank everyone who has helped support this series so far, and I hope you help too. Thank you.